You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the iDicket Podcast. A podcast where we talk about the student perspective of navigating the world of archaeology and anthropology. I'm your host, Michaela. And I'm your host, Alyssa. And welcome to today's episode. We have a special guest here with us, Erin. She is in grad school for a master's and working for the Utah State Historic Preservation Office. Hello, Erin. Welcome to the podcast. How are we doing today? Just fantastic. <laughs> so I, I have a question right off the bat. How did you find our survey so we can figure out where it's working? So... Uh, I have several social medias. I do a lot of social media at work. And so I actually follow a couple of different podcasts on the Archaeology Podcast Network. And your survey came up and I was like, sure, why not? Oh, yay. That's awesome. Well, we are super happy to have you. All right, Erin. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now in your master's degree. Um, so I actually haven't started it yet. I'll be starting it in the fall. Awesome. Oh, at State University. Congrats. Thank you. I'm super excited. So what do you plan on studying? What are you interested in? Um, so the degree is for cultural resource management and archaeology. Um, so it'll be mostly focused on, you know, CRM practices. But with that, I'm actually going to be kind of focusing more on the public aspect of archaeology. So I'll be trying to do outreach for the, the school's museum, and I'll continue to be doing outreach for my job at Shippo. So I'm, I'm kind of really trying to get a good handle on, you know, what cultural resource management entails and kind of what you need in government jobs, federal or state-wise, so I can hopefully eventually get permanent jobs at <laughs> one of those places so I can do public archaeology. Well, best of luck to you. We know the job market's hard out there. Yeah, yeah. You'll be thrown into the masters for a bit, so you don't have to worry about it for a little. Yeah, and plus, true. with your experience with the SHPO, you're good to go. <laughs> you're a little. You're going to be a shoe in. Luckily, well, hopefully, luckily, um, <laughs> I'll be able to stay on with the SHPO office while I'm doing grad school. I'll continue to be able to have um, experience. Mm -hmm. as I'm in my master's, which I find myself very lucky that I still even have a job in these, you know, trying times. <laughs> mm -hmm. I feel that. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, that, that's what's nice about um, that kind of work, because it's kind of part-time on call, right? Is that how yours is also? So it's, I'm technically a time-limited employee, which means I'm not permanent. They can kind of get rid of me whenever they want. Um, <laughs> Just living life on the edge, you know. <laughs> life on the edge. Um, I do a lot of, you know, what typical interns do. I kind of just pick up whatever any of my coworkers need. So right now we're actually getting ready to launch the Utah Cultural Site Stewardship Program. So I've been, for months now, we've been making manuals and promotional material to get this program out there so that the general public in Utah knows that there's opportunities to steward archaeological sites in Utah. That sounds super exciting. That does. <laughs> it's very cool. It's um, There was some state programs before that weren't run by the state. There was one by uh, Friends of Cedar Mesa, which is down in San Juan County, which is in the southeastern corner of Utah. What SHPO is trying to do is 
kind of get everyone on the same page as far as stewardship goes so that it's it's one big good collective organized system of stewarding so we've we've pulled from everyone that has a stewardship program just so we can get it running smoothly and our uh, first training is actually later this month it's actually saturday so we're we're getting there oh my god yeah yeah it's i'm very excited it's been really fun to see the program literally be built from the ground up i started writing the manual like last september oh. and it's finally getting used so i'm super excited Oh, little baby manual now, an actual <laughs> little baby manual. <laughs> Is that all going to be online this weekend? Uh, yeah, so it's all going to be virtual this weekend. Um, we have a couple different trainings set up. So we have people who've never done site stewardship before getting trained. So they kind of know what stewardship is, what it entails, you know, what's going to be <laughs> affected by it. Um, and then later we'll have one for stewards that are coming from other programs where they kind of already know what they're doing. We're just introducing them to the nuances of our program. How long have you been um, working with this company for? Uh, so I started working for Shippo in December of 2019. Okay, so you've been there for a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I actually, sort of, I started getting paid to work at Shippo in 2019, <laughs> December. Um, <laughs> but I actually started in August of 2019 as an unpaid internship through my school to get some extra credits for my undergrad degree that I finished in 2019. So they hired me on like two weeks before I graduated. Um, and I've been with them ever since. And I love it. That's awesome. Be even better if you had full time, though. Be even better if I had full time. <laughs> Come on, Shippo. Well, we're trying. We're trying. <laughs> I'm trying. So, what did you do for your undergrad degree then? Uh, so, I got a just a bachelor's of anthropology from Utah State University. Mm. Um, I did it in three years. Wow, that's so fast. <laughs> Busting for it. Um, it was actually really interesting, though, because when I first started, I didn't realize that you could just say you were doing a bachelor's. I thought you had to sign up, you know, for your associates first and I ended up getting sent to a regional campus instead of the main campus. Um, and it was down in that San Juan County I mentioned before in the southeastern corner of Utah, which is where there's huge, just massive amounts of archaeological sites. Like, I think there's over 40,000 documented sites just in that region right now. So it was actually my first introduction to Utah archaeology specifically. Before that, I'd kind of been doing, you know, Mesoamerican, South American archaeology. So I ended up down there for six months. None of my classes were down there. None of the professors were down there. It was six months of why am I here but I got to see so many different archaeological sites. Like, I guess it was a happy little mistake since you had <laughs> yeah. experienced yeah. all the archaeology there. Uh, so I hadn't really ever thought of doing archaeology in Utah until then, because for some reason, despite the fact that I'd wanted to be an archaeologist my whole life, I had no idea the kind of archaeology we had in Utah. <laughs> yeah. Not a clue. Right um, in your backyard. Yeah, quite literally. literally. 
so to see these, uh, it's all, no, mostly ancestral Puebloan sites, like cave towers, hoven wheat, just these gorgeous structures, the cliff dwellings that you always see, very similar to um, Mesa Verde. I just fell in love with it. I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know this was here. I didn't know that we had this here. And so when I transferred to the main campus, which is in northern Utah, I just went all in. And now I'm an archaeologist in Utah. It's wild. What was like your main interest in archaeology before everything? Like, did it start in childhood or it's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the earliest things I can even remember is reading one of those like super fancy Egyptology books with like this shiny cover and you open it up and it had the like parts of the sarcophagus attached to the pages as you flipped it it would like open I'm having flashbacks I know (laughs) so I like that's one of the earliest things I can remember and so like as long as I can even process I've wanted to do archaeology and you know when you're a kid you say yeah I want to be an archaeologist everyone goes Oh, that's nice. That's that's great. You won't that's do not a that. Job. That's that's a great <laughs> that's dream. <cute. laughs> so I just I just kind of stuck with it. You know, most people will kind of flip flop and go back and forth between they want to do when they're growing up, and I just never did. I was always archaeology. So when I got into high school, I ended up being in band, and I did that like heavily. I was in every band you could possibly be in. So a lot of people were surprised when I went into archaeology instead of music, but it's it's just the only thing I've ever wanted to do, and I can't picture doing anything else. So I can't even like pinpoint how it started. It's just something I've always wanted to do. I've gotten like a sense with archaeologists. It's like either a little bit later, like in a in your life, like after high school, or it's childhood. It's just like yeah, I just I just knew always wanted to do always <laughs> dig in dirt. <laughs> Dirt's bomb. I From love my dirt. first sandbox. <laughs> it's like, I'm reading this book or watching this documentary on TV. It's just like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to be a lawyer when I was oh a kid. <laughs> my mom was like, "You're really good at arguing. You should be a lawyer." Like from when I was a child. <laughs> Sometimes you have to be really good at arguing in archaeology. Yeah, right? yeah, true. very true. true. Especially in academia. Yeah. I think I'm in the right place. <laughs> Cracks and echoes. Let's go. Let's get to the, uh, critical analysis. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> well, that's cute. That's that's super cool. I totally remember having similar books growing up too, just like Nat Geo stuff. And I love the ones. It was like that Egyptology book, and you can take out like little pages, and it had like little envelopes and pull out stuff, and it was just like this giant book and just so many extra little tidbits in it that made it very immersive and I want more of those I should grab some and put them in my book collection (laughs) every time I go to a bookstore I see those and I was like I should get one (laughs) (laughs) you should yes see if you recognize anything from the past (laughs) literally from the past. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I'm having like a strong flashback to this old archaeology computer game. 
um, that was based in like ancient Egypt and you had to like do different puzzles like on the sarcophagus to like open trap doors and like lead you to the next puzzle and did you ever play something like that or is that just like a that might I, be in my dreams <laughs> did I, I dream a, this game <laughs> I have a vague recollection of one of those like computer games that you would play in grade school help you learn like math so you had to like look at the quote-unquote hieroglyphics that was yeah. actually math and do those. I played that <laughs> to the point that I could finish it in, like, 30 minutes. <laughs> was it one of those, like, jumpstart games? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Wow, jumpstart. I'm gonna, I'm that gonna just unlocked. Oh. I'll link it in the description. <laughs> <laughs> that unlocked so many weird emotions. I know. <laughs> The, the first games to teach kids how to do things, and now it's the entire internet teaching kids how to do things. It's crazy. It is us, the kids. Yes. Wow. <laughs> wow, crazy. Uh, so in undergrad, you said you – wait, did you focus on um, uh, like Utah? No, wait, Mesoamerican. Okay, so you were, you were studying Mesoamerican in undergrad then? Yeah, so at Utah State, it's they mostly do Utah archaeology or Great Basin American Southwest archaeology because that's where we're obviously located. Um, so in my own kind of like personal study, I was looking to Mesoamerican and South American because it's always fascinated me. I love it. Um, but because all of my coursework was around, you know, the Great Basin American Southwest, that's what I was getting inundated with. And at the time, I was like, you know, this isn't what I want, but I got to do something. So I, I almost wish I could go back and maybe pay a little bit more attention because now I'm, you know, doing Utah archaeology and I love Utah archaeology and Great Basin archaeology. And I wonder how much I missed in those first, you know, couple courses when I was like, oh, this isn't what I want. <laughs> You're too focused on what you didn't have. Yeah. Yeah. And then later into my undergrad, I branched into some of the more anthropology focused courses because um, I obviously got my undergrad through the um, archaeology track. I took a Peoples of Latin America course and it was one of the best courses I'd had. It was so great to see the like evolution, I guess, in study from the distant past to modern people and how archaeological principles could be applied to modern aspects of our, you know, world and studying modern people. And so that was really cool to see. And it kind of got me that like, uh, I remember when I was doing, you know, South American, Mesoamerican studying before my whole mind changed. <laughs> <laughs> Back when I was an ignorant freshman. <laughs> a wee little bab just a wee, little bab. A wee bab I mean I mean you could still try to um compare and contrast um Utah public not public archaeology Utah archaeology with South America just yeah with and the there's, indigenous people there's a lot of overlap like there there really is we see you know trade networks that go down into Mexico from the American Southwest. So we have, I mean, we find macaw feathers, which are obviously not native to Utah. Mm -hmm. uh, we, they, there's chocolate drinking cups. There's, so there's all these signs and indications and evidence that there were 
at least trade routes, if not direct contact with what we would now call, you know, Mexico, South America. At the time, obviously, there's not those kind of borders. So there's there's a lot of overlap, especially in, again, southeastern Utah, if you're noticing a trend. <laughs> so it's it's not out of the realm of study at the same time, but it's definitely not the focus anymore for me, at least, obviously. So it's been it's been interesting to kind of have my own personal study background of you know, Mesoamerica, South America, and see just how closely related it really is to Utah archaeology. It's all connected anyway. I need to get me a chocolate drinking cup. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say how it must be cool to be able to use that past experience and research that you were doing into what you're currently doing. So it's not like any time was wasted, but (laughs) I totally see it's like, oh, I kind of wish I paid more attention in those courses. (laughs) (laughs) So then all the the connections would be even greater. Yeah. I remember one specific class I was taking um, and we were talking about kind of how corn made its way to Mm -hmm. the more the northern reaches in the United States and how it obviously comes from South America and, you know, Mexico. And (laughs) my professor asked the question, why do corn kernels matter? Like why did the amount of corn rows matter on corn? And at the time, like I said, I wasn't really paying as much attention as I probably should have been. (laughs) And I thought he meant like the actual rows that corn was planted in. Uh-huh. I was like, I honestly don't know. I don't know. And it was in that moment that I was like, I should pay more attention because this is actually really interesting. <laughs> My own state actually has really cool archaeology and I should pay more attention. Like, I can remember that vividly as like the moment I was like, hey, I actually find Utah archaeology really, really cool. <laughs> Maybe I should focus on corn. <laughs> It all started with corn. It all started with corn. <laughs> I was eating this corn on the cob, and I was just like, "Yes, archaeology. Why? <laughs> when? Where?" <laughs> That'd have been cool if you're learning about it in class while you're eating it. It'd be this whole immersive experience, all in one—the full-rounded educational experience. Exactly. <laughs> Or it's like some museums have um, like little tasting sections. It's like, oh, this is how this would taste like. There's in England, in York, which is where Alyssa and I both got our master's, there was this York chocolate story. And it kind of like put you back into the past and through um, Native people making cacao and all this stuff and you were able to like sip on this chocolate drink that they made at the chocolate factory and so it was just like this whole like this is the chocolate that came from the ancestors like thousands of years ago I mean it wasn't it was just made at the factory and all this natural not natural um this current stuff and so it's just like oh nice the past it's like I'm there it's like I'm there and there's like um 180 screen that was like putting you into I think it was in Mexico and it was just like oh this is how like it was jungle here it is and it was it was funny it was great highly recommend <laughs> chocolate <laughs> corn I mean, anything chocolate related right maybe not chocolate oh I mean chocolate corn um chocolate popcorn that Ooh, works chocolate popcorn is good yeah <laughs> 
I was going to say not chocolate and corn, but no, it, there's a way. There's a variation on corn. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> we can talk about chocolate and corn for hours. <laughs> I actually just met someone um, who wants to get a corn tattoo. So oh, that could God. be a good good way to commemorate your archaeological experience. It's like, Heck yeah. Corn tattoo. <laughs> I mean, it would, you know, toss up the uh, traditional trowel tattoos that everyone's doing. Exactly. This corn. one actually has meaning. <laughs> corn. corn. And you could say it's corny, too. Oh, my oh God. God. <laughs> I'll let you leave this call. <laughs> Please. The, the exit button's right there. Oh, it's so corny. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Puns, I don't know, puns make the world go round. They do. Yes. It's true. Yes. <laughs> I have a whole playlist um, for excavation that is just puns <gasps> on digging. I have one literally just called The Dirt. Oh, my gosh. You have to share this with us. <laughs> it's on Spotify. You can find it easily. It's just called Digging It. I found it. I found it. The dirt cave, dirt on my boots, the shovel window, dirty imbecile, grave clothes, finger to the bone, oh broken bones, grave, bury me face down, grit, sweat, and love. <laughs> dig your roots, shovels and dirt, dig a little deeper. <laughs> it just keeps going. Oh my we gosh. will post all of Aaron's photos with like a sound clip from her, her playlist. <laughs> It's a highly curated playlist. This is beautiful. This is so detailed. Like Poor man's one. gold. Oh, what a mood. I have I'm, one expanded uh, Clovis. I'm following this. <laughs> I add to it all the time. So I never knew that I needed this in my life. <laughs> and now that I have it, I can never live without it. It's honestly, it's what got me through field school. <laughs> Do you have? I got my digging. Do you have the Lion King song on it? Which one? Oh, the dig a tunnel, dig dig a tunnel. I don't, but I can totally (gasps) add it. I'm adding it right now. (laughs) Love it. There's my contribution. It's a gift that keeps on giving. (laughs) And some of them you gotta listen to to get why I put them on there. Because like the one of the later ones called On the Railroad, and the first the first line is, "Give me a shovel and I'll give you a hole." <laughs> <laughs> so I guarantee all of them have something something to do with excavation somehow. I believe it. I was never doubting this. <laughs> I'm totally gonna listen to this like the next like on my commute to work or when I'm in the field and I can listen to something. So. It'll be in my ear holes soon. Now we got to put some like corn songs on there too. <laughs> well, I have the, uh, I have like rattlesnake shake because we deal with rattlesnakes out here all the time. Yes. Just, I do have to find, I have to find a good song about corn now. <laughs> Kicks and nettle. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about like some of your goals for the future. Would you like to expand more on that a little bit? Uh, Sure. Yeah. So um, obviously I'm really invested in public archaeology right now. Definitely not the hill I thought I'd die on, but here we are. I would just, 
in doing my work for Shippo, I realized that not only is there just a lack of education on archaeology in general, but there's really so much we can do with it. There's so many aspects and concepts in archaeology that we could be teaching to K through 12 students to get them you know, involved and invested in archaeology from a young age. So I, I would really like, and I'm kind of doing this with my work right now, but to create curriculum that teachers can use to not only teach the curriculum that the state requires and the, what do they call it, the standardized, you know, testing or whatever, but then use it archaeology because, I mean, everyone thinks archaeology is cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... I've started making lesson plans and what I'm working on right now is there's a cave in Utah called Spot and Cave. And it looks like it's going to be, or is, the longest occupied cave in Utah or rock shelter in Utah. So it's it's been utilized for thousands of years. And so I'm using the stratigraphy from the cave to teach the law of superposition, the law of horizontality, stratigraphy to seventh and eighth graders. They get to learn a little bit of archaeology, but then they still get that necessary, you know, science core aspect. Um, I love that. (laughs) I, that's, I, I really love the idea of it. And I think we could do so much with it and really get archaeology into a general educational, you know, environment because, like we kind of talked about earlier, I've lived in Utah my whole life and I had no idea about the archaeology we had here, not even an inkling. And I'd really like to change that because as an archaeologist, so much of our data comes from the material culture and these sites, but they're, you know, they're getting destroyed and they're going away because we're loving them to death. I mean, truly, the... Yes. There's, there's a lot of public sites that people can go to in Utah and they get a lot of visitation because they're super cool. They're, I mean, cliff dwellings, rock art, rock imagery, they're incredible. And so they get a lot of visitation, but a lot of people don't realize that some of their actions and behaviors can affect the integrity of these sites. So, mm-hmm. you know, and you see it a lot with rock imagery, people will carve their names by it or try to repeck the images. And for a lot of people, it's, it's not, you know, out of a malicious intent per se, they just want to have their mark there too. They want to be involved. They want to be a part of this record, which I think is a very human reaction, but because they didn't get an education or any sort of information on how to treat and be around archaeological sites, they, they unintentionally damage them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many studies have shown that the earlier you can get people invested in something like archaeology, then you're going to have a, a greater rate of change. So if we can get school kids to care and continually get school-aged kids to care, they'll continue to care as they grow into adults and start visiting these sites. So in theory, we would see a decrease in, you know, vandalism and unintentionally destructive behaviors at archaeological sites. And so that's really, what I guess, the end goal for me is, is to make it so everyone has an opportunity to learn 
about archaeology and the sites and how to visit them and what behaviors are going to cause damage and what we can gain from sites and why we need things to be left where they are. You know, out here we get a lot of projectile points and they're cool. I mean, everyone everyone thinks projectile points are cool. You know, the, the little the arrowheads made out of obsidian, they're neat. They're really, really cool. And so people will pick them up because they're interesting. But once you do that, obviously, we lose all context for that particular artifact. And there's not a whole lot an archaeologist can gain from that artifact anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, especially in in Utah and the United States, it's a little different everywhere else, obviously. But the majority of the people on the landscape are not the descendants of the people that created those artifacts. So there's this ac- extra layer going on with the archaeology here that it's it's really kind of a fine line to navigate because it's it's a whole thing around respect and you know for descendant communities and the tribes out here and it's it could be difficult as you know a white woman being an archaeologist mm-hmm. to explain to people that one you know it's it's a, a thing about respect it's not yours it's not it's not mine either. One, one thing we're kind of struggling with, and I think it's just, you know, it's, it's getting better, but it's kind of just a product of the times, I suppose, is we're, we're really trying to get more of these descendant voices into archaeology. For so long, it's been, you know. Very white. Very white. <laughs> very. And, you know, in, in the earlier days of archaeology, it was predominantly men. So we're starting to see this this narrative evolve to include the voices of the people that actually come from these cultures and heritages. And we're getting more of women's narrative in archaeology. And I think that's because we're starting to see more of the education find its way into schools. More people are learning about it and realizing that, you know, we we can only do so much at one point, the, the public has to be involved to protect these sites because, unfortunately, there's not enough archaeologists to to patrol these sites, if you will. There's over 100,000 documented sites in Utah. There's not that many archaeologists in Utah. That's, that's more than five. <laughs> you know, it's more a little, than five. A little. It's, it's a low. So that's... That's kind of why I got so involved with the stewardship program that we're making, because I want, you know, I want the general public to know what we have and to be able to appreciate it and to make sure that these sites are still around to be appreciated. The public has to get involved. That's the only way we can, you know, keep eyes on these sites, for lack of a better term. So the the stewardship program, I think, will be really amazing because, a general member of the public can sign up and they'll get assigned a site and it'll be their site. They'll, they'll have some form of ownership over it. I guess you could say um, where it's, you know, it's theirs to go and monitor and help protect. And it helps archeologists because, you know, we get enough people that the sites can be monitored more frequently than what we could do just by ourselves. And then the public gets involved and, they get to help and it kind of comes back into the idea that, you know, you're not going to do something that the majority of the people around you are frowning on. 
So the more people we get involved, the less vandalism we'll have, the less destruction, the less looting. And it also offers, you know, an opportunity for people who don't know the archaeology in Utah to get a taste of it and to see, you know, this is how you visit a site. This is why you leave artifacts where they are. And, you know, just kind of the, like the protocols of visiting sites. There's a, there's an organization called Tread Lightly, and I'm sure they're in other states, but obviously I kind of only know what they do in Utah right now. Um, but they have a respect and protect campaign, which is basically getting imagery and verbiage out to show people, you know, maybe don't walk on the structural walls or don't take pottery, you know, respect and protect our cultural resources. And I, I just really think that involving and including archaeology in a K through 12 education setting is really going to help the general public understand not only what archaeology archaeology is and what archaeologists do, but why there's certain behaviors at archaeological sites that we shouldn't do and shouldn't be done. So that's, I mean, that's really like my, my end all be all is I, I just want more people to know. I, they, they don't need to be archaeologists if they want to. That's great. That's fantastic. <laughs> but I think everyone benefits when we understand the landscape we're on. And to do that, we need archaeology. Clap. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Round of applause. <laughs> it's like when you're in elementary school, junior high, high school, just learning throughout your adolescence, you're told about these historic sites that existed thousands and thousands of years ago. So they just don't exist anymore type of thinking. And then they just immediately go to Europe. And so when you're talking about that, it's just you're able to even like visualize like being taught this in school, just like, oh, these sites existed so long ago. They don't really matter anymore. They don't exist, but they do. They're like in your backyard. They're on your doorstep. They're everywhere. Still and you just, in use today they're by still in indigenous use. communities. Exactly. And it's just that, that narrative that's being said that is one of maybe privilege and just ignoring facts and what's around you and erasing history as well. And yeah, like that stewardship, amazing. And in the education part and having people learn and respect the land and everything that's on the land is something amazing. I have a sibling who would go to Joshua Tree and found an arrowhead and he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to take this with me. He didn't like, this is like later on when he's telling me this and then he's like leaving with it. And then he gets this like dread feeling and he's like, I'm going to put it back. So he puts it back. And after he told me that, I'm like, dude, you just you don't just take things like that. And then he tries to like argue with me. I was like, well, why not? It's just there. And I'm like, dude. <laughs> and then he's like offended that I'm mad or upset. And I'm just like, dude, check yourself. Check and so yourself. it's kind of just that whole mentality where it's just it's on the ground. Nobody's using it. It's mine. I like this. It's like like you were saying, like just protect and don't take things. And it's about respect. Exactly. And uh, one of the, the really cool resources we've we've made at the, the State Historic Preservation Office, and we're working on getting them kind of out into the public, is um, we're calling them artifact guides right now. I don't know if that'll be the, you know, the final verbiage on them. The, the one I can think of right now is we have one for ceramics, and it goes through what we as archaeologists can gain 
from, you know, pot shards or pot drops um, so that the general public that's reading them sees, I should leave this here because if I move it, then archaeologists can't, you know, figure out if this site is from a certain time period or if certain agricultural practices were in action at this time period. You know, there's, there's a lot of information we lose when an artifact gets moved from its context. Mm-hmm. And so these artifact guides are a really great way of showing it, you know, just what sort of information we gain and lose based on if an artifact stays where it's, it was left, basically. I'm having like internal monologues. I'm in a course like heritage and a global perspective and yada, yada, yada. But it's basically like some of the topics we've talked about is like the lifespan of an archaeological site and like how like the Eurocentric idea of archaeology can be problematic in that like we put all of history's value in like an item instead of the people. And it's interesting to think about like how like these sites and places they've been in use for thousands of years. And then now in modern times, we're stopping their use in order to preserve them, etc. <laughs> and it, it's interesting. Um, I think that's why like community archaeology is really necessary because a lot of the times archaeologists tend to like interject themselves into a space and be like, no, we can't use this place anymore. We need to protect it for future generations or whatever. And then like sometimes that can result in like displacing indigenous communities or like um, stuff like that. Like we've been talking about national parks a lot recently um, and just how like national parks in general are very like Eurocentric and this idea of like nature versus culture and how humans aren't part of nature and we need to get all of the people out of this place so that we can preserve nature because it needs to be pristine and not touched by humans and therefore you indigenous communities get out of here because you're messing up the place like even though that's not true at all and they've been living there for thousands of years and it's never been an issue so yeah that's like stuff going in my head just thinking about like like the timeline of a site, you know? (laughs) One thing that was really interesting was when I started my undergraduate degree, I ended up in that regional campus I was telling you about, which, and I'm sure you've heard of it, um, it's in the region of the Bears Ears, which is the big national monument that has grown and shrunk and grown and shrunk and grown and shrunk. And so I was there right when that was first being made. And so I got to see all of these different viewpoints on this, you know, with Bears Ears National Monument being made between the white settlers in Blanding and the the tribes and the natives in Blanding. And it and I definitely don't have an answer for the question that I'm about to pose, but it, it got me thinking as an archaeologist, like where where do we draw the line between protecting the past but still respecting the present? You know, how how do we juggle keeping the past preserved without it being a detriment to the people and the communities that are still living? Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't have an answer for that, but I, I think it's one that kind of plagues archaeology as a whole. Like you said, how do we how do we protect these sites and keep them so that we have them for future generations without cutting off 
the access to the people that are still using them? It's like I said, I don't have an answer, but it's a question I've thought about a lot. <laughs> Definitely. And I think just like the fact that that is becoming like the forefront of archaeology now is like a big step in the right direction too, because we want to jump away from this like collector's mindset that archaeology has always been built upon. And like, it's not our space as white people to determine what site is important and what should be kept just because it looks pretty versus like another site that isn't as aesthetic, but has like more cultural value according to like indigenous populations. So yeah, I think, I think as long as there's like community involvement of the people who are actually there and the people who are actually there are on these projects making the calls, I think that's like the ideal situation for, for all of these. I'm definitely seeing it go into that sort of direction too, which is, which is really cool. And yeah, it's just not always about that collector mindset, but about the people and especially how a lot of people have been displaced over ever, forever. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's just like giving people the voices that, they deserve and people are people and listen to like everyone learns about European history and all this sort of history but some people don't actually learn about their own history until unless they seek it out and they dig through a bunch of different rabbit holes just to find what they need to find so I definitely see like a lot of ethical implications of trying to have this sort of community aspect arise especially because a lot of other people kind of see it in a different way and then everyone just doesn't I mean nobody's gonna have the same thoughts (laughs) we're people we all have like different ideas but heading to that sort of collective mindset rather than very individualistic or very like what's gonna benefit me and my institution or me and this museum but very like what's gonna benefit everyone here yeah, and I think I think that's one reason, at least in my own personal experiences as an archaeologist, that I'm seeing this trend change in regards to the attitude towards public archaeology. There's still a lot of older archaeologists that when you say, yeah, I do public archaeology, they go, well, that's pointless. Why are you doing that? Because it's shifted from archaeology that was funded by the public to now archaeology that is done for the benefit of the public. So, you know, with public archaeology, we we get to have these conversations with people who aren't archaeologists. Um, And we get to kind of get these ideas into the public's heads that they can think about and then have discussions among themselves. And I think it really benefits archaeology and archaeologists to include the public more than we are. We still obviously have to be careful, but this idea that the public should be completely shut out is slowly going away. And I think it's so important because we get to have these kind of conversations. And we'll be right back after this break. Well, so when I was younger, I was hit by a car. Oh my God. Sorry, it's not funny. (laughs) No, it's kind of funny. It's kind of funny. And I ended up getting more injured than I thought I was initially, Mm. but I didn't really figure that out until 
quite a few years later. So I was at field school and we were doing survey and we were doing 10 days on four days off. And we got through our first 10 day session and like my legs really, really hurt, like quite, quite badly to the point that I couldn't lift my left leg. Oh no. And so I, you know, I went to a physical therapist because I, I figured it had something to do with the other chronic injuries I have. And he was like, yeah, so you're going to have to deal with chronic tendinitis in your hips. <sighs> and I was like, great. Um, <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> so, you know, I, I go back to our next 10 day field session and my professor was really, really great. He found a way to keep me involved without making me do any more survey because I just, you know, I needed to sit and basically heal. And uh, I'm, I remember sitting, and I remember it very vividly. We was I was sitting on the tailgate of our crew truck while the rest of, you know, the students and my professor were out doing more survey. And I'm just sitting there and I'm thinking, well, crap, who, you know, who is going to hire an archaeologist that can't do survey? You know, what, what, what on earth am I going to do? Because so much of, you know, the experience that a lot of young archaeologists get right out of, you know, their bachelor's is CRM, is fieldwork. Like, crap, this is over before I've even started. So then I started my internship with Shippo and, you know, we, we still did survey, but it was like, a one day thing. It was a one day survey and I can do that. That's, you know, totally fine. I just can't do multiple days in a row. And then I got to do you know, excavation and I get to do public outreach and I, I get to see the inner workings of state archeology span and be involved with BLM. So like it was, it was really great to go from field school where I'm like, Oh crap, I have no future in this now. Cause I won't be able to get experience cause I can't do multiple day survey to being in a job that I absolutely love and I love my coworkers and they're so supportive in, you know, what I want to do and what I want to accomplish probably doesn't hurt that it also aligns with what they want to do. (laughs) But so it was, it was very interesting just kind of the shift because I, I remember sitting on that crew truck and just thinking, Oh no, I'm done for that's it. Um, And my, my professor, like I said, he was great. He, he, you know, sat me down when we got back to camp. I was like, there's still things you can do. There's still, you know, a future for you in archaeology, even though that this is going to be an issue you're going to have to deal with for the rest of your life. So I, I just, I've, I've had some really great, you know, examples of some fantastic archaeologists and I can only feel the benefits from it. Yeah. I mean, that's the great thing about archaeology is there's so many like subsectors of it where you don't even need to go outside ever. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I love going outside. <laughs> that's, that's one reason I'm going absolutely stir crazy. <laughs> so I've been stuck in a basement for a year. Oh my God. But yeah, I, I just didn't realize how much there was to do mm-hmm. outside of, you know, survey and the traditional field work aspects. Doesn't mean I don't miss it. Cause I absolutely do. I would love to be able to do, you know, multiple, multiple day surveys and, you know, do the sleeping in the tent thing for eight days. And like, I, I really enjoy that, but I, I made the mistake of pushing too far at field school. And I ended up having six months of downtime of healing 
because of it. So I've, I've learned to take what I have and, you know, kind of, I mean, do I miss it? Yeah. But I, I want to be able to continue to do it. And to do that, I can't overdo it anymore. So I'm glad you're still able to get a taste of the field work still not completely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm so, so lucky to be with the state historic preservation office. I mean, really, I, I don't, I honestly don't know what I would be doing because I do, I do get the, you know, I get survey experience. I get field recording experience. I get excavation experience. I've had collections experience, you know, databases, data management, archives. I mean, I've, I've had tastes of just about everything. And you're able to take care of yourself in the meantime. And I'm able to take care of myself in the meantime and not <laughs> horrifically injure myself again. <laughs> yeah, we don't want that for you. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't want that for me. <laughs> nah, that's a big uh, no over here. Yeah, 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 that's but a no for me. So cool that you're able to do everything that you're passionate about a little bit on a lesser intensity. But yeah, that's cool. Yeah, there's so much with accessibility and archaeology and even like wordage too. Alyssa, do you remember that time on Twitter, mm. on the archaeology Twitter for the University of York, where one of the professors taught was doing this fieldwork experience oh, yeah. and he tweeted something being like, oh, the rite of passage as an archaeologist doing field, field walking, field walking. And people were just like, yo, dude houses are in passage like some people who are archaeologists can't do this it was this whole debate online and it's just like interesting became a big thing <laughs> it's like he's I, like i'm so sorry i didn't realize like <laughs> me by saying this was doing this <laughs> <laughs> well i think it's so hard because you know the traditional aspect or you know idea of what archaeology is is that, you know, walking for days on end or camping and digging for days on end. And that's, I mean, it, it is an aspect of archaeology, but it's definitely not the only one. And I wouldn't even say it's one of the biggest ones. And I, I feel like a lot of not only, you know, younger K through 12 kids, but also college age kids get, get really left out of what they could do because, it seems like we are so focused on that field aspect that they don't, they don't get to know that there's a whole, you know, there's museum collections, there's lab work, there's research, there's so much you can do that isn't the field work. And I just feel like that, that doesn't get highlighted as much. So there's so many people that don't know that they could be doing something they love that is accessible because it's just not talked about. So go find your subsect of archaeology. <laughs> go find your subsect of archaeology. <laughs> Maybe that's something else that can also be talked about when talking about archaeology to middle schoolers, high schoolers, elementary school. It's like, it's not all about dirt. It's not all about dirt. <laughs> Let me tell you, space archaeology. Amazing. Mwah. 20 out of 10. Very biased about that. <laughs> not really. I would love to be a space archaeologist. That'd be so neat. And I mean, the moon landing does fall under that now. <laughs> it's like, Whoa. let's go to space. Maybe not. When technology is like a little bit better in like a hundred years. Someday. <laughs> um, put me into like one of those cryo tanks or something and preserve yeah, where me. Yeah, you just and fall asleep. Wake me up later. Yeah. yeah. 
that's what I'm here for. And I hope that becomes a thing while we're still here. <laughs> Remember to put all your loved ones in there too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anything you would like to leave with us or the viewers, the viewers, the listeners, <laughs> or any advice you'd like to give to people thinking about entering archaeology? I mean, on that aspect, I think it's just there's there's so much more to do than you realize. And don't ever get discouraged by what other people say, because there is a place for you in archaeology. No matter who you are, no matter what your abilities are, there is a place for you. You just have to find it. Yes. Second that. <laughs> Third that. <laughs> Can I fourth my own? <laughs> do it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it was so nice having you here today with us, Erin. It was lovely to chat. Thank you for joining. Do you have any social medias that you'd like to promote or have people look at slash follow slash anything? Or websites? <laughs> yes, I do. I have so many. <laughs> Ooh, say them all. So they're all going to be my work stuff because I'm a workaholic and I love it. <laughs> Pretty much you can look up Utah Shippo. U-T-A-H-S-H-P-O on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube. We have a presence there and we post quite often. We have a lot of uh, educational videos on YouTube that kind of go through some fun topics, Utah's archaeology and preservation aspects. And then I also have the Utah Cultural Site Stewardship website, which is where you can learn more about kind of what we're doing with stewardship. Um, and from there, it links you to the whole Shippo blog. And we have articles upon articles and, and pictures and videos and just a lot of resources if you're interested in learning more about what stewardship is. Amazing. Amazing. Be sure to check all those out and get involved and learn some more things. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a wrap. See you all next time. Or hear you all next time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. yeah. yeah. Bye. <laughs> Bye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Archaeology Podcast Network.